Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. It's funny the things you remember from growing up. One of the things I remember growing up and watching TV when we didn't have very many channels to choose from was hearing a lot of commercials for a group that was called the Starving Artists Group. These ads would talk about how you could go to your local mall and get paintings and other kinds of artwork at really cheap prices because it would seem that the artists were starving and apparently desperate to find food and to not die from starvation. So it was kind of a sad commercial, but one in which one could find many deals. And I have to say, growing up and being very impressionable, it wasn't a really good ad for going to the arts either. Because after all, if the artists were starving and selling their paintings at a mall, who wants to starve and sell paintings at a mall? Not me. That's a good point. Good yeah, I, I was I was definitely not into that activity. But regardless of this kind of fatalistic overtone to the arts, I don't think we can deny that the arts are really important. And in many ways, arts are essential to driving our creativity and even what makes us human or even our human nature. We can say that the further we get away from our artistic nature, we might be getting further away from makes us who we are as human beings. I mean, after all, if you look at art, you look at works of art, there is something about the human condition. There's something about human expression. There's something about ourselves we can find in this work that we can discover even if we didn't create it. And if you've seen people trying to create artwork, even at a very amateur level, there's something of themselves in it. So staying connected to the arts is a way of staying connected to who we are, to what makes us not only us as individuals, but what makes us us as a species, as human beings. The trick then, when doing corporate work, which sometimes can be human-less or so-less, how do we stay in our artistic and creative nature? How do we stay connected to being human when doing corporate activities, which may not be artistic or creative in its own nature? How do we remain artists in our lives and in our work without hopefully starving as a result? And, uh, you know, we can think about how artistic we are. I'll say we're artistic. Uh, but you know, so. one, of the, one of the pieces about this too, of course, is that when we uh, like to be creative and make things, you know, as podcasters in this case, uh, content creators, uh, that's as part of the other work too, that, you know, it's uh, whether from a corporate client or working in a corporate environment or making content for businesses, it can be kind of tricky to then figure out this, this point, right? How do we kind of keep the artistic elements alive while also not starving and kind of making work that, that gets out there also you know, to help support that process. And so to help us break down this kind of creativity and art and making a living conundrum, we're really excited to welcome to the Experience by Design Studios, Maximilian Piras. He is a senior designer at Headliner. And if you're not familiar, or if you if you listen to podcasts, this may sound like familiar to you, but if you have not heard of Headliner, it's a platform that helps podcasters uh, and content creators repurpose their content to help expand their audience, reach into new areas, and to help expand their creative output by basically doubling tripling, splitting out the kind of content they can make from, from one episode or one piece of content. So it's a really interesting platform. And it's not just an app to kind of help you turn longer form into short form clips, but the goal is really to help you repurpose your purpose, something that we'll talk about in the episode today. And this helps us by thinking about you know creatively redefining content for different audiences, different kinds of outlets. And in our social media saturated world, creators do have the big challenge of kind of fitting one form of content into many forms of the medium. Uh, in essence, kind of the question or problem is, are we are we leading ourselves all to starving artistry by having to make so much? These kind of tools can help us rethink that process. And so by using the suite of headliner tools, creators can be more freed from the mundane aspects of this kind of creative and, and repurposing process, allowing them to, voila, focus more on the artistic and creative sides. And to get back to that question of how do we make art for life, 
and make a living at the same time. So as part of the conversation, we're going to be diving into things like the innovator's dilemma, which is kind of balancing and thinking between the idea of sustaining something versus disrupting it through innovation, uh, the challenges and opportunities for AI, for creativity, and the power of art to help us reframe our problems and approach things in new ways. So there's a ton of great content and ideas that we're excited to share with you today, maybe repurpose at some point as well, and we can't wait to share it with you. So let's dive on in. I was um, I was reading your website, which is really impressive, and reminded me of a commercial I used to hear growing up. And I I don't know where you're from. Where are you from, Maximilian? Originally, I'm from New York. Okay, so it might not have been around here, but in Detroit area where I'm from, there was a group called the Starving Artists Group that would oh, uh, have sales of artwork. And I always thought it was a difficult negotiating position to frame yourself as a starving artist and to have that be the, the beginning point of trying to sell art. It's almost like, you know, we're desperate. We're so desperate, please buy our artwork. And when I was reading yeah. your description of yourself, trying to avoid being a starving artist, that reminded me of this commercial, the starving artist group, how you could go to the mall on Saturday to buy the artwork. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. I think a lot of, that's what a lot of artists have to go through. So I respect the hustle. It just, wasn't for me. So, you know, I, I feel like if somebody, if an artist is starving, I'm like, okay, you're, you're dedicated to your work. I respect that. But me personally, I was, you know, wanted to feel a little more comfortable. So didn't take that route, but I understand, understand how an artist would put themselves in that position, full focus on, you know, their craft. So I have, a, I have sometimes students will come to me because I work at a private business school and they'll apologize for wanting to go into a career because of the potential earnings that that career has. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. House are good. Food is good. Clothing is good. Yeah. These are all good things to want. I mean, you know, exactly. there are basic necessities of life and that, you know, the idea of you should do what you love, regardless of how much it pays sounds great. At the yeah. same time, it's always a balance of, how do we turn what we love into something that also we can tolerate and that we can actually live by? Yeah, absolutely. I, I always think it's a, it's like an interesting juxtaposition between those two frames because why wouldn't you want to try to find the best setup for yourself and succeed, et cetera. But I think an interesting byproduct of me not focusing on art was uh, also that you become a lot more freer in the art that you're doing. Cause I, I still do art on the weekends, you know, I'm, I'm drawing all the time. I'm trying to cook up random projects and I forgot at what point it kicked in, but I was like, Oh yeah, when this isn't your job, you can do whatever you want. And there's no pressure to make the work that sells, you know, it's purely just enjoyment. So actually I'm a big, uh, a big advocate of artists who are not, not starving, working elsewhere and then making work, you know, on the side and kind of being able to, to express exactly what they like. But didn't Michelangelo have to deal with the Pope? I mean, if you have a commission, you have to, you're ultimately working for somebody yeah, and you have like the exactly. Pope being like, I don't know, I think we need a fig leaf right there. And Michelangelo yeah. going, are you serious right now? I'm, I'm laying on my back, you know, painting this crap. And you're going to come at me with this at the last second. It's like, you know, having someone deliver notes to you when the job's almost done. Oh, could you just add a little bit more fig leaf over there? I'm like, oh, I guess you're paying my bills. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you get the freedom to turn down the Pope. So yeah, the freedom uh, to turn down the Sure. That'll be the that'll be the title of the episode: "Freedom to Turn Down the Pope." <laughs> the day we uh, turn yeah. down the Pope. Right. I don't know if anybody's actually free to do that, but <laughs> that's a good question. It, it's actually a good point. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I'm not sure about that, but it makes me think too that there's um, talking about this. There's like two books that popped in my head. One is um, Jeff Goins' "Real Artists Don't Starve" and Austin Kleon's mm -hmm. "Steal Like an Artist." They both say the same thing, in oh, essence, okay. which is these like interesting strategies for like how to thrive in creative ways, you know, but I, but I also agree with you, um, with you both in, in the sense that, uh, you know, as a, as a musician that could very easily starve myself, um, I remember I got very good advice from a, uh, like a, a my partner in college, her father is a musician full-time and he, and he was like, don't go into music if you love doing it, <laughs> right. keep it for you, exactly. do work elsewhere. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that, that I was told that at that, at that pivotal moment of when I could totally be, have become a rock star. Right. Um, you know, yeah. that like there, there is, there is value also in like understanding one's, one's work, um, as passion and then like 
understanding where we can place it. And so I think, I think, I think there is a really interesting kind of back and forth there. Um, yeah, totally. how we choose that, that pathway, you know? And I think, I think both work for, you know, different scenarios, different people, like some people probably enjoy that process. And as an artist, you get some constraints and some direction. And for me, I like that as a designer, but for some reason in art, I like it to be a lot more blue sky and then design. I, I love people giving me some constraints and then I can just say, okay, let's make this thing together versus art. I'm like, leave me alone. I'm doing my own thing here mm-hmm. and it'll make sense to me, but you guys don't have to get it. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's probably some musicians who love that kind of plugging in and maybe getting some direction from somebody and then riffing on that versus the people who are like pure artists and they're like, I don't care if a label will never put this out. It's, it's just what I have to put out there and, you know, get it, get it out in the ether and, and express myself like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, all, all valid approaches, I think. What kind of art did you like to do? What was your thing? Uh, drawing was, was my thing. It still is. I try to draw, like, I don't draw every day anymore, but I try to draw as much as I can. But I used to draw like every day for a couple hours. And then I went into painting and then animation for a bit and, a little bit of sculpture. So I kind of jumped all around and then just kind of came back to drawing. So I have really heavily into the figurative space, a lot of figure stuff going on. Um, yeah, mix. Uh, I, I would do some abstract too. So I okay. definitely started very figuratively and then I tried to get into abstraction. And, um, you know, with animation, it was a lot more just kind of strange shapes moving around and stuff like that. So I, I had, I kind of, I jumped around a lot. I wasn't very consistent, which is probably why I was, you know, not, probably a byproduct of not trying to become a successful artist because you need some consistency. So I just kind of do whatever, whatever felt right at that moment. It's, mm-hmm. it, ma- it makes me think because I, I actually in teaching an ethnography class, which I do at the graduate level, I studied art instructors because they art instructors teach art students how to see what's right in front of them, much like ethnographers try to teach students to see what's right in front of them. Mm-hmm. And so having been around some art classes, I've seen this mix between the hyper-realist approach, trying to capture in minute detail figure that's in front of them, as well as people who had this working knowledge of that, but were trying to go much more impressionistic, much more emotional, much looser, and kind of seeing like this foundation, like you're needing this foundation, but not being so stuck in the foundation that all you're doing is reproducing what's there but you're trying to draw inspiration from it to create something from inside of you. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like uh, Picasso's early work. I don't know if you've ever seen right. it. Oh yeah. T- totally tight. Yeah. So I think that's, that's totally uh, required to, Oh, maybe not required. So you'll get away with it. But I think having that knowledge makes you even better when you're going totally against it. But, but then with, for me, like the, you know, being more as a designer, a little more utilitarian focused, like, when I see a hyper-realist painting, there's nothing that bores me more because I'm like, you can just take a photo. You don't need right. to paint that thing for for days. And it's, it's amazing that your still allows you to do that, but I'm, I find it very boring to look at. So give me something a little more emotional, abstract. You know, it could be figurative, but it's got to bring something else to the table that a photo can't do. Or even in a photo, maybe if it's documenting something, it's one thing. But if it's meant to be art, you know, where's the expression, etc. So... That, that was always my take on on art was, you know, show me something different than we can get with our cell phones today, you know, like bring something new to the table. And now it's interesting with, I mean, now I'm bringing it up, but, you know, with, with AI, we're now having to answer this question elsewhere. We're saying, okay, the, the means of reproduction and, you know, imitation or just creation from different people is, is leading us to this space where the utility of being able to to just create something from from scratch is is no longer as as you as individualizing as it was or like you know as uh it doesn't it's not something that somebody can use as a focus anymore so now we have to say okay well now that everybody has access to creating imagery and creating essays etc what's next i don't know if that's we're not there yet but i think mm-hmm. it seems like that's where we're going right mm-hmm. i mean i i guess uh, i i agree with you there too and it does seem like that's the the kind of direction that we're moving in. And one thing that I've been kind of wrestling with and thinking about in this space with the rise of, of generative AI at, at as like a pretty easily consumable consumer product uh, is the, you know, and you kind of hit this to a bit on the value of originality, right? And on one level, like 
we kind of think that art itself uh, in, in the in, in a piece of art that we make has a form of originality to it, whereas design, um, you know, I mean, Canva has been around for a while, like Adobe Express, which is now called mm-hmm. Adobe Express, right? But it was Spark Post before that, right? Like there, there's been a bunch of these, these kind of tools that, that were not generative AI at first, but they were like banks you could draw from of, of assets. And so generative AI now is making it so I can like create a new image, right? I can create an essay to your point, music even. Uh, is there, you know, on one level, there's the idea of the, the creating an original product, right? Or kind of you, you mentioned reproduction of images. And then the other side is what is it that we're using AI to try to generate in, in, in this, in like an industry sense, in terms of, um, some of the creative work that, that I, that I think makes us human, um, is not ever under threat of going away, but it's interesting. That's what we've, we're choosing to tackle first, right? Writing an essay, mm-hmm. making an image yeah. versus like, again, automating or putting generative AI to make traffic lights work better. <laughs> you know, um, it's right. interesting questions. I'm curious about your thoughts, lots on this. Um, you know, do, do you see that, that same kind of direction at play? And like, what is, what is, uh, what does it mean when in terms of like, you know, is, is there a reason that we're like going to those forms of creation first as, as ways to use AI? Is it cause it's like a, it's a fun thing. So we want to like add some fun mm-hmm. extra pieces to it. Um, or is it just like an, yeah. a weird happenstance that this is what we happen to be trying to generate around? Yeah, it is. It is really funny that it like came for the developers and the creatives first. Like, and the <laughs> drivers are still yeah. cruising along, and meanwhile, we're all like, "Oh, are we out of jobs now?" I don't know. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, also sorry for making this about it, about AI yeah. within the first ten minutes, and there's only you know a matter of time. But here we are. Right. <laughs> I saw on uh, um, Spotify um, the CEO said that generative AI as a topic for podcasts is up like five hundred percent this year. So no doubt. Yeah, yeah no, you don't say. <laughs> and here we are adding to the to the pile of <laughs> AI based uh, of, of AI um, podcasts about AI. But yeah, I think it's um, I, th- I think it's it was really surprising but when you think about it, it. Makes sense because there's things that you need to get right, and then the rest, creativity, like everything's subjective. You know, you go to what was was it the Biennale where. Um, I forgot his name, but the artist who typed, taped the banana to the wall, and that was like a right. piece or something. Hmm. I forgot what his name was. He's, he's a good artist, though. Besides the banana, his work beyond the banana is very interesting. But the banana maybe it was <laughs> more of a statement, you know, not a not a representation of his skill. Um, but so, anyways, that's you know, when you can type a banana to the wall, and that's art. You know, it kind of makes sense that AI can start taking this over because there's a big margin for subjectivity, right? So you're so, saying that there was some low hanging fruit there. <laughs> See what I did? I made a joke with the banana. The banana the... was not low. It was okay. Well, no, I'm just, sorry. I, I, I think I dragged that out. Too <laughs> I was trying to rip off. The um, but yeah, I, exactly. I guess the, the low hanging fruit of creativity is like, you know, it, there is tons of work where you look at it and you go, I guess it's good. I don't know. Like whatever. And the powerful stuff completely floors you. The bad stuff. It, it's weird because the, the powerful stuff is is also um, some people hate it. You know, if like they say, if you don't, if people don't love or hate it, then you're doing something wrong. If you're in the middle, that's not where you want to be. You know, I have friends that I bring to an art museum who aren't as into art theory as me, and they just get mad at things. They're like, "Why would this be on the wall?" Right? And to me, that's good art because it's challenging your beliefs. Mm-hmm. But uh, all the stuff in the middle, I mean, like, yeah, why not? Why couldn't that be the, the reaction we have with it, which is kind of uh, ambiguous? Just looking at go, oh, yeah, that's, I guess that's interesting. Whatever, let me move on with my day. That seems actually a lot easier to automate than, you know, maybe driving a truck or traffic or the traffic lights, right? There's, there's real world consequences to that stuff versus mm. the piece of art you see on um, a newsletter that you scroll by in like two seconds. Just go, oh, yeah, cool, cool image. Let me get to the text. There's the consequences are pretty low, so easier to automate, I guess. That's I, my have a, I have a friend who made me think of something. I have a friend who owns an art gallery and he sells, you know, works of art. And he says when someone's buying a piece or thinking about buying a piece, they also come in and say, I want that. They want to mm-hmm. learn about the artist. They want to learn about the motivation. They want to learn about the person's background. There's a desire for a larger narrative to add meaning to the piece other than it being just a pretty painting. It also makes me think about video games and Adam and I are, you know, both play video games. I don't know if you do, but the games in which there is con, there's a narrative that drives the content that there's a story and it's not just 
you know, Donkey Kong. Although I guess Donkey Kong did have a story or saving the princess. Right. But, you know, you know, so it's like you know, this idea of, yeah, sure, like an, a, a generative AI might create a picture, but what's the larger thing driving the production of that piece? Like you said, it could be hyper-realistic, mm-hmm. but what, what else is being brought to the table beyond just the technical capability of producing that, you know, figure drawing or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's stuff that like that, you just, there's no way to automated like well i might eat these words but it doesn't seem clearly like something that you could automate because it's about human connection and i don't i don't feel like that's the work that's at risk if, if anything that type of work will only be like ai will become a tooling for those artists where there's still be a person expressing themselves but they have a different toolkit now with ai um based tools to get to get their images or whatever their statements are out into the world but then i, I think it's all the other stuff where you know, the, the more like book covers, um, you know, maybe even album covers, uh, news, newsletter illustrations, that stuff is, there's a little bit of a different value proposition or value right. system, whatever. And that seems like it's more automatable, which is maybe okay. I don't feel like there's a lot of times when probably artists just do that to pay the bills. But I guess the question is, are we removing a kind of a ladder to get to the other, you know, is that, was that kind of the stepping stones to get to, that spot where you're in the gallery, which I think is very few. I don't know what the stats are, but I guess not that many artists actually make it into galleries and make a living off of right. work like that. So are all the stepping stones that go away? Because that's something that's pretty concerning for me as a designer where, and I assume developers too, where a lot of the junior work that we would hire a designer to do in the past is now pretty automatable, which is good for us because we're already kind of secure in our jobs and might eat these words as well. But, you know, we're, we're at the point where, you know, we're old enough. We've been here for a while. We, we kind of don't need to work our way up to, to as much because we're, we're a little bit closer to like being in the system, I guess. But the people who just graduated college are those opportunities now gone. The ones that I started out with, which was like, you know, optimizing images or like, you know, but very production heavy tasks. And so I think that's the question is for me is, is how is it affecting the, the stepping stones to get to, these higher up opportunities where people probably feel a little less threatened by automation. Mm. Unless, unless I'm wrong and we're all wrong and we're about to get automated as well. We'll edit that out. If we're wrong, we'll just edit it out and have AI yeah. put new voices in that shows we're right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess, yeah, we'll make it easier. Right. Hmm. No, but that, that's an interesting point too, to, to think about, you know, how do we, how can we, and, and both should we, and how might we predict what, and where automation is going. And it's kind of, kind of a weird question too, but it, it's like, um, even if we, if we kind of think about also your product design work with headliner, for example, like, you know, the, the, the idea and the service behind taking an audio program and helping or video program and helping them create, um, either short reels from it, you know, transcripts, like follow along a bull, um, other assets that can then move to different platforms. Um, you know, it's like, I think about that too. And it's like, that, um, is an incredibly valuable service because then it helps you helps a podcaster or a content creator, like be on more platforms more easily, especially for a small team of one or two, right. Where you then would have to make everything, um, before this process. So even that's an interesting question too, because the, the other side I'm, I'm wondering about here too, is like, um, the, you know, what help comes in service of, you know, especially again, small designers or, or more junior producers, maybe. Um, for creating like other kinds of content outreach, you know, um, which I guess is a little bit different because that's like content repurposing maybe versus creating something new fundamentally. Um, and there, there may be that piece too, I guess, in terms of like, where's automation going there? I think between these ideas of like repurpose versus, versus um, generating new content. Um, but I guess both those would equally affect junior level employees, per- perhaps senior level employees too, at some point, I suppose. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's an interesting question of like, how do we think about where it is that, um, where, where automation might be taking us, um, I guess, do products, digital products point us in, in any directions or have you seen things that like kind of register on your radar that like say, here's what you should be thinking about um, for what automation is, is doing for us? Yeah, I think the, the big one for me is um, just trying to classify it as how big of a, of a paradigm shift is this? And it's obviously massive, but is it... Um, I always go back to this this book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. Dilemma. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys that one. And you know, sustaining innovations versus disruptive innovations, and and I think uh, to me, it's trying to understand how disruptive this is going to be in terms of you know 
whatever at this point it's touching everything right so it's like yeah, i guess the entire web and most of our workflows how disruptive is it to that and uh, there's actually an interesting piece from i think it's ben thompson who writes scratechery i don't know if you guys know that blog mm-hmm. but he had this uh piece talking about how he thinks all, all these and of course you know, ai has been with us for a long time so it's, it's also a bit strange to say like oh it's here now when we do it we've been using it for decades maybe uh, maybe more. I'll just leave it at decades. So I don't overstep in some form, right? But now it's gotten really good based on large language models. But the question is, is that how disruptive is that? Or is it more of a sustaining innovation? And it's looking more and more like it might be, it might be the latter. Like, and, and his piece was all about how Google is, is able to respond pretty well to this threat of Bing and open AI now. Putting generative AI in their search engine and, and Google's implemented it as well. And it's kind of, it's almost as good or it's, you know, maybe a little bit better for this, a little bit worse for that, whatever. But his whole point was, you know, usually when you have disruptive technology or disruptive innovation, it's not that easy for the incumbent to just take a few steps and all of a sudden they're very competitive. And, and also, by the way, like they're the ones who invented the technology to a large degree. So. In, in a lot of ways, it looks like it might be more of just an upgrade of everything else we've been doing. Like it might not be some massive disruption. It might be more of just a massive um, increase in efficiency for everything else that was in place versus completely changing it. And so in that case, maybe the question is about uh, when things do get more efficient, are we really going to stop doing anything that we're doing right now? Or is there maybe this like pent up creativity that we've yet to unleash now that we're more efficient uh, everybody will kind of reshuffle in ways that they can create more interesting things and and we just um as opposed to automating our, all of ourselves out of jobs we instead just create a lot more things that are, are useful right and maybe those junior people with the stepping stones are gone for maybe now it's easy enough for them to spin up their own projects because you know you don't need to be as good a programmer anymore you can just uh use ChatGPT to help you program whatever or create art or create content and maybe we just get a lot more diversity in the ecosystem. So so that's, that's my uh my hopeless optimist read of it, which I, I tend to go on the scale of, you know, towards optimism, glass half full. So I, you know, I might be wrong about that, but at least I'm excited and happy about the, the potential we have here. One of the things that makes me think about with all of this, you know, especially around interaction design and interactions with people and whether or not we're interacting with an automated voice agent or not. The idea that on the one hand, it's not going to replicate what humans can do really well. So we'll never get to that level. The other question is, does it have to be because will our standards and expectations drop so much that we, it will suffice. You know what I mean? The idea that what before we all had to go teach on zoom or, or Google classroom or Google meet the idea of good sound quality in when you're listening to something or good video quality, when you're watching something was paramount, right? You're not going to watch a TV show with bad audio and bad cameras, but now our expectations have so lowered because of the onslaught of diminished audiovisual production Mm-hmm. That people have become able to accept things mm-hmm. that we would never accept before. I mean, even think about the airline industry, right? That before the the level of service we're getting today in the airline industry, if we would have just dropped that level of service 30 years ago from what we were experiencing back then, no one would fly that airline. But our expectations have dropped so much. So is it going to that the technology would get so good? Or that our expectations will drop so much it doesn't even have to get that good. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And like the the thing that kills me the most today is those TikTok or Instagram videos where people are just filming their face or they're like they're doing a skit, but there's no costumes, there's no set. It's like we, we have to imagine everything. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Oh, I trust. Have I seen it? I have a 13 year old. You have a 13, all right. So I'm just like, <laughs> how does that pass for entertainment now? Where's the set design? Where's the costume? You know, why, why is it just one person? Where's the chemistry between the the different act, like the different actors, different comedians, right? So I, I totally hear you. And I think it's it's one of those, those are, that's my moment of being like, wow, I guess, I guess I'm getting old because apparently this is what everybody is. Uh, th- this is passable at this point versus, you know, I, I thought our standards were, were a little higher for what makes good entertainment, but there you go. 
I used to, when my daughter was on her phone laughing, I used to say, Oh, what's so funny? Let me see. I stopped asking because every time she showed me what was so funny, <laughs> I, I was like, I don't, what, I don't get it. Like what's, what's funny about this? She's like, Oh, it's hilarious. This person is dancing. Right. I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> like what's so funny about it? Well, they're dancing in their room. I'm like, okay, well, and, 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 and what's, what's their content? Well, that's it. That's what they do. They, they dance in their room a lot. I'm like, yeah. And how many views does this person have? Really? And then I look at the number of views. I'm like, oh dear God, this is ridiculous. I weep for yeah. this generation. It's awful. It's very strange. And like, I don't, I would think they'd want to be in a room with other people making, you know, skits together. Like, I remember when I, like, when I was growing up, I loved all those sketch shows, like Kids in the Hall and, you know, Saturday Night Live, et cetera. And I'm like, how, why don't, why aren't people seeking out that kind of, that chemistry or that energy anymore? It's definitely probably a statement on the isolation that, technology kind of pushes on us, I guess. And hopefully, hopefully that's, a, that's not the case. It's just a small representation of, you know, I maybe like, it's one of those things where I'm like, maybe I'm using the wrong thing to judge here. Like maybe my measure of sketch comedy isn't the right thing to say society's going down or not, you know, like, I think it's a pretty good measure, actually. I mean, I think about that, you know, I think about like watching Monty Python growing up on like, right. you know, on PBS or whatever. And, you know, I've seen, I saw kids in the hall live. I've, you know, I've watched SCTV, you know, you see like these, you know, the groundlings or, you know, upright citizens brigade, all of these things are like, Oh, okay. There's an art, there's a mastery. There's a way of putting it together. There's a trajectory of learning how to do it so that you reach a certain, you know, position where you can then feel comfortable in putting yourself out in the world. I, I somewhat admire these kids and other people's um, lack of self-awareness because they're not afraid of just putting crap out into the world. And I wish I had that. Yeah. That's, I listened to um, a podcast about like forgetting everybody's name. So it's Ty uh, something, some new pop star. And that was his method of getting, figuring out how to get onto the charts was he just throw stuff on TikTok, see what people react to. Or they, like he took, treated it like a complete experiment. And so I thought it's really interesting. He's like A-B testing his songs. And it's <laughs> like, it's both fascinating and maybe terrible. And, but I put his music on, it's pretty good. So I was like, all right, he's, he's talented. And, you know, it's maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's just different now. I think it's, yeah. I always go back to, and now, you know, I have friends who they'll hear new music and they'll say, like, what is this? The kids, they don't know what they're listening to. This is terrible. It's not like our music. And I'm like, this sounds way too familiar. To oh, yeah. our parents tell us, right. do not see the cyclical nature of that. <laughs> maybe it's the same here. Like if you put on, like if, if think of, uh, you know, being uh, maybe 60 years old and, and you hear Eminem for the first time and you're like, this is what the most popular music is at the time. Like maybe it's a similar thing where you just have to, when you're in that zeitgeist, it makes more sense to you. That's my hope, at least. It's not. It's not worse. It's just different. And you know, as you understand whatever that zeitgeist is, maybe it makes more sense. But I'm definitely out of the loop enough where I, I don't. You know, I, I miss the kids in the halls sketches uh, as opposed to everybody just dancing in front of their phone. Mm -hmm. No, I mean that. That's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this too because it's like <laughs> as a as a, as a kid in the eighties, I didn't have any way to film myself, but I definitely would put on some stupid play or pretend that I was Link trying to rescue Princess Zelda in my backyard with a stick as my sword, you know, that uh, explains or, a lot. or something, yeah, right? You know, still <laughs> today. Um, you know, but it's like, if I had filmed myself, it would look like what we would say is the crap on, on TikTok today, you know? So it's like this interesting question of like, uh, I don't know that uh, I'm, I'm wondering if play has changed or which I mean, on some level, yes, but just like the idea of playing and imaginative play has, has changed or the fact that we can film it now. Like, and like, so the apparatuses we have, which with which to share it have certainly changed. So it's like this interesting question too, that I, I mean, cause we can't go back in time and, and see how many kids, but we can all just imagine if, if, you know, what we were doing in our backyards or something or with our friends, um, as kids, like if we did some of the same stuff too. So it is, I think you're hundred percent right to like, you know, on one level, the music question is great. Cause it's like, do we not just see the echoes of like, this is exactly what we saw our parents and grandparents said to us about whatever else is coming out now. Um, and what we're, we're now starting to say also. Um, and, and at the same time though, the, the, yeah, the ability to share it widely is, is really, I think what's different. And that's interesting. Like, um, I guess I'm like, if I went back in time, would I have filmed myself 
playing, you know, pretend Nintendo in the backyard. Like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> when I was young, I was obsessed with movies. And so I think for a birthday or something, I got a video camera. And so I was, mm. I was always filming my own little home movies, you know, with my friends trying to create a little, we, I think we were doing kids in the hall, like sketches and stuff. That's awesome. Little, uh, yeah, that's cool. Tapes and, and yeah, so we would actually do this. It's funny you mentioned this. I never thought about this until now. We would do the same behavior, but in a very hyper local sense. We'd, we'd film a little mm. skit of ourselves. We think it's funny. Then we plug it into the VCR or whatever, show it to the rest of our friends. And, and I forgot if they thought it was funny or not, but it's probably the same behavior as TikTok just now on a much more distributed scale. So I guess I think you do have a point there. It's strange, but probably, probably not so different than what we've been doing, just different uh, form factor. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, it's even like uh, the rise of podcasting itself too, right. As, as a medium that at first was just like, well, let's actually make radio shows recordable on one level, like, or like the, the type of radio program. Um, and then of course, like just the weirdness that we all realized, <laughs> wait, like in the era of ever increasing sophisticated videos, I just want to listen to somebody. Put them in my right. ears. I can do something else. And like that's really interesting too to think about. That as much as things change, there's also still some things that will will stay um, the same. That like we didn't. I mean, I never ever thought about conversation as a particularly special thing that we should be recorded. You know, mm -hmm. in the '90s or even early 2000s. But then like um, even like I started podcasting in 2013, and like then didn't think too much about it. But then like watching like the massive rise of this as a popular medium. Uh, has been has been fascinating to to see people like actually this is what I want. I mean, granted, you can do different things, and if you're watching YouTube videos, is it requires a different kind of attention versus if you just have headphones and you can wash dishes, walk your dog, you know, go on go on a run or something. Mm -hmm. um, but even that is interesting as well. Like the the other kinds of I don't know, quote unquote, non special things like having a conversation um, between two or more people that uh, you know when you stick it in an audio file with microphones and call it a podcast, it suddenly means something else, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting question too of like, what are we dipping into in terms of ourselves? And I guess I'm, I'm also just reflecting on this backwards now to our AI conversation before too. Um, not of what will get automated away, but just like as as we do build new technologies and new forms of expression, um, you know, there may actually be some things that are staying the same that we don't you know recognize. You know, we just may see them in a, in a different light. I guess so. Um, I don't know where that's going, but it's an interesting interesting. Uh, kind of reflection i'm just having i'm just thinking aloud here of, of like, yeah, no, it's, I think it's yeah. a really interesting point i think you're kind of you're putting a nice kind of bow on that optimistic optimistic take on ai which is that you know because a lot of that stuff is like tiktok um versus my back in the day when i was filming stuff with my handy cam um a lot of that stuff is now possible because of ai because of automation where people weren't going to learn how to operate that little camera and then figure out a video editing system and then figure out how to transfer it to the VCR or whatever. Now you just can do it all on your phone. And then the result is um, kind of like podcasting. We unlock all the, all this new creativity. So maybe that's the, uh, the optimist take on AI is that it's just an extension of that, you know, camcorder to TikTok video for, or radio show to podcast. And there'll be new forms of creativity that come as a result of, you know, more democratization of, of the mediums and of course more craziness too, because that's the other part of it is that, you know, give everybody a microphone and, and you hear some things you didn't want to hear, but yes. you know, that's, that's what, that's what, uh, you know, democratizing a medium looks like and sounds like. So, so yeah, I think it's a nice thing. I, I think it's, it makes me feel better about the uh, potentially terrible future. You know, speaking as two guys on who do a podcast, one of the, you know, I started doing podcasting back in like 2014, 2015, you know, I, there was much less back then. So it was easier to get discovered if people were looking for it. Now we have the question of more content because it's easier to make, it's democratized and that's all great. But the question now becomes discoverability. And I know with headliner, you know, the company you're with right now, that, that you know, that's a, a thing you all are trying to help with is how do we just, how do we become discoverable? for people who might be looking for what it is we do in a world in which there's so much stuff being thrown at everyone all at once, it can be hard to find what it is that we, we, we will need and we will, and we also want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, thank you for bringing it back to headliners. So we don't talk about AI for another, another hour. Well, I am, I'm a, prof I'm a professional Maximilian. This yeah. is what I do for, yeah. not for a living, but you know, for, for fun. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, 
to foil your plans here. Headliner, of course, is an AI product to some degree. So we're back on AI. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, exactly, I think, about uh, just helping people sift through all the, all the new contests. Like we unlock creation and now we're just overloaded with potential things to try. And so those curation tools become much more, uh, much more powerful, which of course is not a singular tool. In some ways, it's like the web itself has all these systems and protocols for curation. And so without getting too into it, I think our perspective on headliner is that we just don't think the, that audio is really a, like a first class citizen on the web or the internet in general. It's, you know, if you think about how you search the web, it's all via text or visuals, videos, imagery, et cetera. Even when you're searching for audio, you're usually looking at cover art and descriptions, right? So that's not really representative of a podcast. You don't look at the cover and say, that's, I mean, this is what we have to do right now most of the time, right? But you look at a podcast and say, that's definitely what I want to hear. You just kind of have to take a gamble and say, well, the cover looks interesting. The description sounds relevant. So when you click that and see what it's like, and of course, this is, these are totally, uh, these are rarely correlated factors, right? Because maybe you have a really great interviewer and they just don't know how to make cover art and their writing skills aren't great, which is why they're making a podcast in the first place. Mm. So Headliner is kind of like a suite of different tools that help try to make audio more like a first class citizen on the internet via automating video clips of a specific, um, specific parts of a podcast. So we kind of create like a video editing suite that allows audio creators to output video. So you don't have to become a video editor per se. This is like a big, big insight we had since we're on the experience design podcast. A big insight into the experience was that a lot of audio creators, although they need a video to promote their show across, let's say social media, they don't want to edit videos. They don't really know how to They think audio first. So we've been doing a lot of thinking of like, how do we make video editing feel more um, intuitive to an audio creator? And so, uh, yeah, anyways, to get back, so I'm kind of losing the script here, but to get back no. to the fact that that's it was trying to uh, make it easier to discover audio all across the web. So, you know, AI plays into it, of course, because we transcribe the episode. So there's a text component that we can use that to create recommended clips. And then we can automate those into trailer videos for social, et cetera. So pretty much it's just a big practice in, in making audio more discoverable. I also even think about, you know, not just podcasting, right? We, I think of myself, even though I'm a professor as a content creator of sorts, not just because of the podcast, but because I'm creating content for classrooms, for students. And now there's such a mix of, you know, what we call hybrid environment online and in the classroom. So some classes are flipped classes where students watch a video, then come to class physically, or I record my lectures while I'm delivering it in person. So students can go back and review certain parts of it. Or I'm just teaching asynchronously where I record all my content and students access it independently. That's all creating content, right? And I st- I've been really, and by the way, most academics create dreadful content. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's so bad. I can't even believe, I texted Adam yesterday. I was watching some content. Didn't I text you, Adam? I was angry. He did, you did. I was very upset because I'm like, this is horrible. And it reflects badly on all of us because it's not the bad content but it's bad content creation. Mm. And so I even start to think about a tool like Headliner to help academics who's, you know, aren't video production people. They're not audio production people. They're, you know, professors and experts in certain areas. How do we create better content for the multi-modalities, multiple modalities that we deliver our material? It's a mm. huge challenge and a huge opportunity as well. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think it's, on some level, I feel like the future is, is really just about it's about maybe content or messages, regardless of, of the medium. Like we'll have some headliners kind of, uh, in some ways, it's like a conversion tool. So you have a piece of audio. How do you make that text? How do you make that video? So that the, the message within that can just be plugged into all the different, uh, the different ways we discover content across the web. So, you know, tons of people are on YouTube. Why can't the podcast also be distributed to YouTube? So it, Gets sent out to all the podcatchers. You can listen into an Apple podcast or any podcast app. But if you happen to be somebody who is on YouTube all day, that content can now get into the recommendation algorithm. And now you're going to discover something based on not the medium, but the content itself. Like, you know, you don't, you don't have to think like, Oh, I listen to podcasts. So I'll listen to this. It's just, do you want to listen to this piece of content? Is it, is it relevant to you? 
whatever medium it is, we can hopefully work towards a future where it's it's very seamless to deliver it like in that multimodal sense, right? And I think it's interesting because if you think of the silos of a lot of content, like there's so many great podcasts out there, but for a lot of people, like, you know, my mom, for instance, will never open a podcast app. She's just not interested in the media. Right. But I can definitely find she makes she's a big cookie decorator. So I bet there's tons oh. of uh, yeah, she's her cookies are awesome, but I'll send you some if you like to see them. But I'd love yeah, to see that. yeah, she's she's a pro. But um I'm sure she'd love some uh some cookie podcasts, right? Like some about cookie decorating, whatever, right? Like, but I don't know if they're out there. I should probably search and try to get her interested in some. But if she was scrolling through Instagram and she's on like the cookie decorators hashtag or whatever, and you get a preview of whatever cookie decorators podcast popping up in there, maybe that would put her on to, oh, there's a whole community here that I didn't know about that's also talking about this. And while I'm making them, which takes hours as well, she could be listening to all the stories that people tell of their experiences in, in the same pursuit, right? Which is, that's the beauty of podcasts. And so anyways, I, I think uh, to not get too exuberant about it, I'm just excited about the fact that, you know, content can kind of break out of those those barriers or, or walled gardens or whatever you want to call them. And I think it's, it's also raises interesting questions because something else you said, you said a bit ago that um, also stuck with me is that the, the medium I guess if I can, I'll challenge my inner Marshall McLuhan here that uh, <laughs> the medium is the message in that like, uh, if an, if an audio creator or, or a podcaster that just has an audio program, like may not think of themselves as a video producer or doesn't, or doesn't have the skills to do so. Right. Um, but you know, one of the fundamental problems still today with podcasting is discoverability. Right. And, and like, that's an interesting point of how do you get discovered, seen, heard by new audiences, um, and one of those pathways is to be on more channels, right? And that then, of course, means making the jump to, to video or even uh, clips of an episode. If you have 30 minute hour long episode, you know, having a, a two minute, like, here's a great nugget to get someone excited um, is interesting. So even as as this idea, too, in terms of like, um, I, I guess, I don't know, do you, do you think that we will begin to see, or, or, or are you already seeing, I guess, in different, I don't know if there's user research on this that y'all have found, or just in general, that uh, we're seeing creators either say, I'm, or I, I said that I was a podcaster, now I'm a multimedia content creator. Like, are people's identities changing, I guess, or how they express themselves as creators because they can more easily or have more democratized access to, to being able to change the channel, as it were, in terms of what they're, what they're putting out? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting question because um, we talk a lot about a lot about it uh, internally, which is just that like being a podcaster doesn't really mean you're technically a podcaster anymore. I mean, <laughs> when podcasting started, you yeah. you know we're distributing like like what does a podcaster mean technically? You cement files via RSS and you know it's audio devices, and now you have people talking about video podcasts, right? Like put your record yourself in the studio talking to your guests, put that on YouTube, forget about the RSS feed. That's a podcast, and of course, internally we're just like that's a video. You're not a, you're not even podcasting anymore. But podcasting colloquially has become more like a like a heuristic for I guess the the mood or like the vibes of what it means to have like more of a long form conversation, which I guess can be audio. It's like some strange heuristic for like you can have a video, but you don't need to watch the video, and that's a podcast now. Anything that like you can have on that's audio only at least for some of the experience. And of course you have some of these video podcasts who are like throwing up visuals midway. And so if you happen to be listening to that episode, you're actually not even experiencing it anymore because they're, you know, talking about something that they're not explaining through audio. And so it's, it becomes a very strange um, kind of confusing, I guess, box to try to, to place the creation into. Right. But I guess uh, that's that's the research insight we have. Is like it's very confusing now. Like any apparently <laughs> videos are podcasts, and we just have to build for this new world, right? Mm. And so I don't know. It's it's confusing, but I, I think that there's a lot of people who are true to that original um, ethos, like the audio first, and it doesn't have to be RSS feed. I mean, I like RSS because it's I like kind of the more open, centralized technologies, but it doesn't have to be RSS necessarily. But I think. There's a skill for people who who create audio first that mm. is what makes podcasting interesting. And these people who are good at making videos for YouTube, it's, it's not really the same, the same skill set. And so to your point, 
do like podcasts or stuff to become video creators now. I think the whole point of, of Headliner is that they shouldn't because they should stick to what they're good at. And mm. the rest is all just almost like a distribution mechanism. So right. that's like a, it's a kind of a vision that we think would be the right way to direct the future where it's like you focus on what you're really good at creating, you know, audio first, maybe your video, but you're probably not going to be a headliner user in that sense. And then the rest is all distribution. You hit publish and get shot out to audio platforms, video platforms, optimize for the best performance on all of those. That's the dream. I mean, kind of a mess, always a messy process of working towards that. But I think that's, that's been the, the main insight. And, and we're just trying to, uh, we're just trying to get there. <laughs> It's really, God, it really makes me think because I spend a lot of time on Twitch, both streaming and also watching. And it is, it's, you know, it's live streaming is a different operation than creating a video. And it's a different operation than creating a podcast or doing audio, even though one of the radio stations I listen to here locally at, you know, in Boston live streams on Twitch every morning. And so it's, but it's an, it's an audio first. And I see people who are, you know, either doing a show, they even have a podcast channel on Twitch now. Uh, they're doing yeah. a show, but they're also creating clips for TikTok, but repurposing. It's like, and I think that's, that's the definition, right? What's your purpose? Number one, what are you here to try to do? And then how can you repurpose as ancillary product, but not to try to make the repurpose your primary purpose? You know what I mean? If we want yeah, to play on the semantics. I love that. It's a fantastic branding. I've actually never thought of it like that. Like obviously repurpose is a common term we use, but I love the idea of drawing it back to this is repurposing because that's your purpose. It's a very, it's a very nice distinction between the two. I just made it up. So you can go that's ahead great. and use it. <laughs> it's it's my gift the record, so we can't, I can't claim credit for it. I'll trade you that for cookies. Done. Done deal. <laughs> I don't know. I'm lost about that, but yeah, we'll see how benevolent she wants to be with her cookie, um, <laughs> her cookie giveaways. Fair enough. Why'd you sign me up for Maximilian? Sorry, mom. This is yeah. <laughs> it's business, mom. You got to do it. I got a good term. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's really good framing though. I, I think that that the purpose is all like, that's, that's, that's what we tried where, you know, we have, we've talked very little about, I think, uh, a user experience per se, but I guess we've talked about largely about experience, but, um, but in terms of the user experience, that's what we try to keep in mind. The headliner is like, Keep them. I'm going to use the term you just suggest. Keep the focus on their purpose, and then the rest can is all kind of like an optimization task. And so, how do you keep them focused on the thing that really matters to them? And then all that busy work. the The dream is like it's it's in the background. It's it's automated. It's out of sight, out of mind. And it just works. Of course, it's never so simple. But I think that companies like Headliner they're interesting because their main focus is just like trying to get the stuff that's that's not meaningful to you out of your way. Right. Mm. Which has been complicating for the user experience, by the way, because we now, some of our recent features are completely automated. And so the experience of using Headliner is like, you set it up and then you never come back. So the user experience for us is almost like the least, the, the, the more we bother you, the worse our product is. Like the more you see Headliner as an app, kind of the worst it's going. So the best thing is like you set it up and it's just, it's out of your, it's just out of your mind and it's just working. So it's been a kind of a, an interesting shift from a user experience standpoint to start thinking for how do you build almost an invisible app where everything is, it's background process, but. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially as we even think about where design might be headed, you know, I mean, obviously like, the graphical elements change every few seasons of what's, what's emphasized, but that's an interesting idea of essentially creating an invisible program that you like set once and then get an email when your episode comes out and says, Hey, you think your thing's live, ready, ready to go, you know? Um, which is actually nice. I mean, but I guess it is, it is like, how's your experience with the app? It's like, I don't know. I used it yeah. once and it, and it works. So, uh, I guess great, you know, but that's an interesting idea of like, I guess I think about that from a business standpoint too. Like, how do you, how do you help build like customer loyalty in that sense? It's just that like, I, I feel safe getting a consistently good product from working with, with headliner or is it like, I guess, or ha, I guess maybe how to, how do you get see user response in that regard of like building loyalty in the, in the, in never touching a program or never, never not touching it that often, I guess. Yeah. I, it's definitely tricky. And by the way, you, they, you, uh, the users do touch it a decent amount. Like we're not, we're definitely not at the point where it's invisible. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, 
a vision we're working towards. But uh, to your point, like, is it a place that you want to get to where you get maybe you set it up and then you never hear back from the user and then you have no idea if they're enjoying it or not? It's kind of drawing that this distinction between how do you be like an annoying person like who's just pestering them all the time saying like, hey, did you like this? Yes, no, or, or is there a way to do it a lot more implicitly? And so um, it's it's a question that you know I don't have a great answer to. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot over the past maybe two or three years when we started automating a lot of the app away. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely a new mindset to to work through as a designer. And the best there's always signals, I think, but it's just you have to figure out where else can you get them when they're not coming into your app and. Or do you want to maybe, maybe the completely hands off experience is not the right one? Cause we're, as I mentioned, we're not even there yet. So we still have, play, we still have people who come back to the app and we can figure out, okay, well, if they, you know, use the video, if they download the video, that means it was good. Or if they went to recreate it, that means it probably wasn't good. And, and so even more so explicit feedback mechanisms where it's like thumbs up and thumbs down. Mm-hmm. So that, that stuff maybe should never be removed because the quality of, the output might suffer as a result. So it becomes one of those things where, you know, maybe there's, there's too far, uh, maybe you can push automation too far. And when you completely bring the human out of the loop, you just have a worse product. So the better product does have a little bit more friction and it's hopefully as enjoyable as possible. Like, yeah, you have to come back and give us some insight onto how it, how it worked, but you know, it's, um, the, it's, it aligns it with your goals, which is to have a better output, right? I think it's kind of like an assistant, like, if you have an assistant who you just never hear from, you're like, are they, what are they doing? Are they doing, are they helping me or are they just right. not even working anymore? Right. So having the, maybe a little bit of friction, but in a way that feels very seamless and not frustrating and not cumbersome, I think is, is probably the goal, but it's definitely a work in progress. Yeah, do you guys have any, um, like invisible apps that you have experience with, like what any automation tools that you frequently run or have, have uh, tried out in the past. Adam be the guy for that. He's more of a tech guy. I'm old. Maximilian. I'm very old. I don't, I don't know these things. I'm, I'm waiting for the Ruby phone to come back in the style. Only, only uses Twitch. Only uses yeah. Twitch. Um, what are you, you trying to think? That's a good question. Rotary phone, the rotary phone. <laughs> rotary phone, nice. Have you heard of that before? Kind of, kind of could be fun. Yeah, you, know, you spin it and then like, you wait a while for it to come back. When you have a phone number with a lot of eights or sevens, it's always a bummer. Yeah, I think that's where the the iPod uh, wheel came from, right? The inspiration for it. Oh, it might have. Interesting. Maybe I'm sense. not 100 percent sure, but that, we'll run with uh, it. So you, you heard it here, folks. Maximilian says the iPod wheel came from the rotary phone. Print it. Right. And I, yes, let's wait, let's wait for uh, the fact checkers to all <laughs> call me an idiot. But I mean, there's, there's something about those where I used to play those when I was a kid. Like there's that experience. It's like when it's more streamlined, it's, you kind of lose that, that tactile enjoyment, right? Where I love the, just the, you know, that feel, the tactile feeling of the release when you, you pull the, the router or whatever that wheel is called. And then yeah. it would just sling back. And then, you know, that kind of clink, that was experientially, I thought that was really fun. So there's something to be said about the rep, the rotary phone is doing a lot, right? Maybe we got to get back to those experiences. <laughs> Maybe we need, uh, we need some new iPhones with the rep, with the rotary phone. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> rotary dial. I know. Yeah. I, I remember when, um, I don't know if it was when the, the iPhone first came out, uh, or right after, but there was some like, you know, speculative design sketches or like mock-ups of, of basically an iPhone screen, but it had like the video of the, of the wheel from the, from the iPod of like a way of that's how, like, how would you scroll on a video screen like that? Cause uh-huh. remember if we, we all forget like in 2007, before that, we had never done that before mm-hmm. and like yeah. just had a fully tactile thing. And so there, I remember it was like literally just a video version of that. Oh, wow. um, and I was like, that's actually kind of sounds kind of sweet now, <laughs> but it wasn't interactive. Like it was uh no it was yeah. video demo. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's just, it's just like a speculative demo of like what it could look like, you know. You know, the, the people always make like, oh, here's what the new MacBook might look like, you know. It's right. that kind of like speculative stuff on Dribble, you know. Uh, yeah, I love that stuff. Just like the, like all the stuff we take for granted, the like keyboard or mouse. Like when you think about it, it's such an amazing concept that they were able to figure out how we could interact with a computer like that. And then, of course, hopefully soon it's it's gone and we have something better. But 
you know, the iPod wheel, the touch screens, et cetera. I, I just think they're all, it's all very interesting in terms of like the different input devices, but that's, that's kind of a deep geeky rabbit hole that I want to bring you guys down. Well, you know, it also makes me think, and I really don't have any AI devices right in the background, but I started video gaming on an Atari, right? I mean, the joystick was literally a stick, right? And it had one button. And now I've been playing on a PS4. I've been playing Apex on a PS4. It's very different. And the first time I looked at that controller with four buttons on one side, four buttons on the other side, two little thumbsticks, and then two bumpers. And then even if you go like a scuff controller or something like that, you have buttons underneath. There's a lot happening. I'm like, I don't know if I can handle this. (laughs) I really don't know because I, there's a lot of coordination and again, I'm old, but it is interesting the ways in which we can become adept at manipulating certain kinds of physical tools in enough time, right? And given yeah. enough motivation to, to go in there. And I think to your point about friction, on the one hand, it would be great if it was seamless. On the other hand, there is something to learned mastery. Mm-hmm. That the, the easier things become, it goes back to painting, right? To bring it full circle. Sure, I can go on and I can have, you know, some AI generate what looks like a sketch of something and me by me doing the commands. But there's something about learning how paint feels across a canvas or how, a, you know, a, a certain, you know, softness of pencil feels on a certain type of paper mm-hmm. or a rotary phone feels in your hand. And maybe that's nostalgic. Maybe again, it's something that future generations would be like, well, why would you want to do that? It's like having childbirth without epidural. You know, yeah, one could, but why would you want to? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, but at the same time, a bit of an extreme. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's where I went. Um, having watched childbirth a few times, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, the idea that friction can be a good thing because through friction, we attain growth and right. we are a chain. We, when we learn, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually doing some writing about this right now. And I've got all these examples that I thought were really interesting of different people advocating for friction, which feels a little counterintuitive from user experience design or maybe even just experience design in general, where you're kind of told to try to remove as, as much friction as possible. Right. But then the asterisk is like some friction is necessary and it doesn't seem necessary at first. But then when you start to, to dig a little deeper into it, you realize, oh, that's actually it seems like nothing's happening here, but there's some second order effect that if that's removed now, the whole rest of the experience is messed up. So that's, it's almost like a, like a, a misplaced externality in the sense that like, you don't understand the implications of what that that's doing. And then you pull it out and everything gets worse. So what seemed like unnecessary at first was actually, you know, holding things together. And uh, there's a bunch of great, quotes from Don Norman on this. He's actually got a book that I've got to read. Uh, I think it's called Living with Complexity. So I've only got mm-hmm. a few quotes from it. I haven't dug in yet, but his whole point was, you know, things that things that you understand aren't complex. You look at a airplane cockpit and and myself at least I won't speak for you guys, but if I look at the airplane cockpit, I'm not gonna know what's going on. It seems really complex to me, but to the pilot, it's not. It's intuitive, right? Because right. they've, they've gone through the friction of learning it, and now they have this amazing skill of flying a plane, which all those controls are the controls are necessary to do so. So it's it all. I think it's all situational in that sense that you know things that are have a little bit more friction actually can be adding a lot more value as long as the experience is is, intu- is intuitive and like you know enjoyable, right? Hmm. So it's a little counterintuitive, but I think it's uh, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, there's, there's there's like, and it's complex to whom, right? It's it's like like the, the levels of friction also will matter. But I, I agree too. It's like you know because there there's been a lot of conversation of like pushing for the the frictionless designs, you know. And it's like, but I think you're right that the right amount of friction is important, right? For for like, and oftentimes in this case, like the unintended consequences if we don't realize that if the pursuit is to have a frictionless experience, then then it's like you know that's an Amazon problem where you like buy things too frequently because you don't actually want to. Right. Right. Or, or like the Alexa, the <laughs> Alexa ordering stuff from the TV. And then there yeah. came some weird kind of recursive thing where they had news, news reports about the Alexa ordering things um, off the TV and like on a TV show, a news TV show that's reported, which then created a bunch of more Alexa orders. So 
by reporting <laughs> all of it, kind of like distribute the problem even further. So. That's how they're going to take us down, man. That's it right there. The Alexa yeah. are going to are going to group are going to hang up on us with the generative AI, and they're going to order things, and we're all going to become bankrupt and, and subservient <laughs> to the uh, the larger Alexa hive mind. All right, it's unplug, so man. Plus, with Amazon Prime orders, it's not too late. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bezos finally got us. Right, all master plan only from his rocket ship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't escape that well thanks so much maximilian it's been great talking with you about all this stuff and uh you write i know you write a lot where can they find your writing and we'll post it in the show notes as well but like where where can people find all of your interesting musings on all of these topics yeah thanks um i actually don't write super frequently it's about one one or two a year so my batting average is it's a little it's, it's very little academic slow, of you it's for an yeah. academic that's pretty good <laughs> man I'm like an unqualified PhD. I have a PhD in everything, but title and and perhaps knowledge and et cetera. You, you give me cookies. I can. You give me cookies. I can get you a PhD. Oh yeah, you got the back channel. Just don't up. worry about it. I got my connect. I get your PhD. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, thanks. I, I, you can find my writing on my website, which just all linked there. So it's maximilian.nyc. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you most, so much for having me. Really enjoyed talking to you guys. We'd like to thank Maximilian Pierce from the Headliner app for talking about maintaining the creative spirit, using art as inspiration and helping people fulfill their passions and content creation. This has been a really fascinating conversation and I'm taking a lot away from this and thinking about how I can apply more artistic processes to my own creativity and also how can I help both myself and my colleagues, you know, solve different problems using artistic and creative thinking in ways that help us, you know, sustain life. And you can find out more about Maximilian's work over at the Headliner app in our show notes. As always, we want to hear from you. And some of the questions that we're kind of coming away from this conversation with are, have you used AI in your creative process? And is it something that you find helpful or do you want to keep it at a distance, you know, with a 10-foot pole? And also, how do you feel about repurposing content tools? Are these things that you've used before um, and do you find them helpful as part of your workflow or also are you curious? Are you, are you kind of app curious in this case? So we'd love to hear about those as well. You can shoot us a message as always at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or jump on the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And thank you for listening. As always, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day for making our conversations part of your life. And we always appreciate the feedback that you give us, what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, or what you think we can do better. We're open for all kinds of feedback. So make sure you shoot that feedback over to feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And as always, if you're looking to promote, if you're looking to discuss, if you have ideas you want to explore, shoot us a message and we can think about having you on and even sponsoring an episode. We have a great community of folks here, of experienced designers, experienced designers of all kinds that you can reach and you can advertise the work you're doing to them. And finally, if you'd like to buy us a coffee for what you're hearing and enjoying, head over to our website at experiencexdesign.com and feel free to buy us a coffee. And as always, stay safe, stay well, be kind and be here for the next experience by design. Bye.